Hide your kids, hide your wife. And Linda, you better listen because according to the media, Christian nationalists are taking over Montana. Beware. That's right. The worst thing going on in Montana is that Christians are getting into political office. So we'll talk about how the media has no idea what Christianity is and why they think it's a threat. And then we'll also talk about the first non-binary priest in the UK and how he's just breaking molds left and right, including the molds of logic. And then finally, we'll look at hopefully a new segment on the show, Bible Study with Democrats, as they try to help us all regain our conscience and help us all understand why the only legitimate thing you must do to protect women and babies is abort them. We'll talk about that and more today on Indie Thinker. Today's show is sponsored by our friends over at Element Home Loans. If you're looking for a new home or you want to refinance your existing home, you need to go check our friends out over there. Not only because I need you to purchase things from the people who are my sponsors so that they will keep on endowing this great podcast with money, but also because, sincerely, Element Home Loans are the best in the business. Kevin Blair and his team over at KevinBlairTeam.com will help you better than other mortgage companies who are merely trying to lure you in with a quick and easy interest rate that you may not even qualify for. It's better to go with a trusted name in the business who's going to get all your information up front so that somewhere down the road they don't have to say, sorry, you don't qualify for this home. That's what the other mortgage uh, businesses do, but that's not what Element Home Loans does. They get all your information up front so that they can pre-qualify you and send you on your way to go shop for your brand new home. But in order to find that out, you need to go to kevinblairteam.com today, and when you do so, let them know that Andy Thinker sent you. Welcome to the show. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Happy belated Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Now, if you follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or the other various socials, then you would know that uh, I sent out a video yesterday kind of in honor of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Now, people say a bunch of different things about Martin Luther King Jr., his past, and uh, what he has accomplished, and, and all that kind of thing. Um, I, I, I want to be really clear about something here. I think it's important for us not to blindly adore somebody that the culture does, but also not to do what the left does, which is they consistently want to try to bring up someone's past and try to throw personal attacks at someone to undermine the great contribution they made in society. And it's undeniable that Martin Luther King Jr., regardless of any of the things that the FBI said about him and whether they're true or not, which more and more today you have to wonder about because of the credibility of the FBI, regardless of any of that, it's undeniable that this man took a stand for an issue um, at a time where it cost him a lot. So I think that there's that that's not only notable, but but praiseworthy. And so I think it's important to take the time uh, to celebrate him. But what's interesting to me is that those who oppose Christianity the most, and in fact call Christian evangelicals the white neocolonialist who wish to indoctrinate everybody with their religion, uh, those people are the ones who are the ones who praise Martin Luther King Jr. the most. But what's funny is that Martin Luther King Jr. was an evangelical pastor. And in fact, the history of uh, abolition and the history of civil rights is inundated and uh, and originated from the ideas that are found in Christian scripture. 
So it's true to say that without the Second Great Awakening and without pastors like Martin Luther King Jr., there would be no such thing as the abolition of slavery and civil rights in the American West and perhaps around the world. So we owe a debt of gratitude certainly to those who are willing to stand up for something that matters, but also for those who are willing to stand up for Christian truth. And I bring that up today because we're living at a time where slowly but surely, it's not just the woke activist, but it's more mainstream than it has ever been to rebel against Christianity. And this is what creates the kind of animus towards supposed Christian nationalism. Now, I'll be the first to say this. If by Christian nationalism, you mean everybody that uh, lives in America has to be a Christian, well, then I'm not a Christian nationalist, and quite frankly, no other person that's being accused of being a Christian nationalist is either. But herein is the problem. People want to accuse certain people of being Christian nationalists, but never define the term. So I will do it for you now. Christian nationalism is is essentially this. It's, it's a social contract. It's a limited agreement by people who live in a society that they are agreeing that some loose principles based upon Christian ideas are best suited to protect and ensure the safety of those citizens. Now, it's undeniable that a student of history would say this is exactly what happened in the early foundings of America. Our society was founded as a Christian nation upon Christianity and and that's also kind of another definition that's thrown up that that I also believe is, is legitimate. So, Christian nationalism, in other words, is the idea that America is a nation that was founded upon Christianity and that the government should take active steps through democratic processes to keep it that way. Now, I think that is a useful definition for Christian nationalism, I would say. So if there is another definition of Christian nationalism, we can talk about that and then we can hash out whether or not that is something that Christians actually believe in. But by and large, the vast majority of Christians just hold this simple idea that Christianity is a religion that has changed the world as we know it. And it has changed the world for the good. Not that everything that Christians have done is good, but the belief of Christianity has created the greatest nation on the planet, and it has been a great good for the rest of the world. Now, all of this is undeniable unless you just wish to throw all of your history books and put them in the incinerator. So the idea is just simply that we're going to have to agree upon society in a limited way regardless of if you do this from a secular humanistic perspective or whether you do this from a Christian perspective. To be a society, we all have to hold some genuine, sincere, base-level beliefs together in common for us actually to be a society. Now, the real problem with this is that more and more, as our society becomes post-Christian, we're finding that we hold less and less in common together, and the individual is being exalted as the preeminent example of what a society is based upon, and the reality is, is you cannot create a society based upon atomized individualism. We have to be able to agree upon some things, and so the real question becomes this, what things can we agree upon and what is best for a society. Now, I want to bring up really briefly a book that I just started jumping into that has an interesting premise. Uh, The author in the foreword talks about reading a book that discussed what life was like in the year 1000, the beliefs people held, the things that were going on at the time, and what just life was like for those people living at that time. And so he decided, uh, based upon that study, because he thought that that was so unique, to create a book based upon living in the year 2000 so that people, when they look back and they want to know what happened in the year 2000, 
what was life like? They could go to this book. And came, and what came from that study was the book written by Tom Wolfe called Hooking Up. And the simple premise is this, is that people used to talk about necking, and then they got to home plate, and that was taking it all the way. And nowadays, we get to home plate, and then we ask the girl for her name. The idea is simply this, that as a result of our society and our current belief system, we are more and more running away from decency, morality, and a society that makes any sense. So let me put it to you this way. The further we get away from Christianity, the more our society becomes ludicrous. So while many people in society who just have some gripe against Christianity want to consider Christian nationalism a threat, our society is moving further and further away from Christianity. And these are the kind of things that are happening as a result of that. So now it's not a threat to have gender clinics for minors all over the United States. It's not a threat to ravage the third world with green policies, ensuring generational poverty because we're keeping these nations from industrializing. It's not a threat that progressives are bent on aborting 70 million babies and making sure that half of those every single year, which we abort about a million each year, half of those babies are from minority communities. It's not a threat that we're redefining what a man and a woman is, and it's not a threat that we're crushing women's sports out of existence, helping the country return to a moral stasis. No, that is what's wrong. Helping our country get back to a sense of the importance of family, the importance of marriage, the importance of raising a nuclear family, a mother, a father, and children. That's the real threat in society. So the question then remains this, is if a society is going to legislate morality, and they must. So for those of my Christian friends out there who say, oh, you can't legislate righteousness. Well, that's true, but you can legislate morality. So for those pastors who don't want to get their hands dirty actually talking about what's going on politically in our nation and don't want to stand up for the unborn and actually have blood on their hands in the process of trying to keep their hands clean, I want to assure you that we will continue to have societal discussions on how we should line up as a society and what we should agree upon and how we must legislate morality. And the question then becomes this, among the two competing ideas of our day, should we legislate morality on a secular humanistic basis or should we continue to legislate morality based upon a Judeo-Christian basis? Forgive me, but I'm going with Christian. And we'll talk about how we're faring as a society as we push further away from that in our top stories today. Now, later in the show, I'm going to start a brand new segment, like much like Christianity, not today. Um, and it's going to be Bible study with Democrats. And I'd love to see kind of what you guys think. You can leave down in the comment section below if this is a a segment that you think we should continue on an ongoing basis. But for now, I just want to take you to the beautiful state of Montana that uh, the, the mainstream media is deeply concerned about because Christians are running for office and winning in Montana. So, um, so leftists are freaking out, lighting their hair on fire, and they are quickly jumping to the conclusion that it is better to drink poison than to take your vitamins because they're rebelling against Christianity for what exactly? Um, because we believe in traditional marriage, because we believe in morality, because we believe in the, the scandalous, a man 
was actually born a biological man and cannot get pregnant. Because we hold these incredibly radical views, uh, Christianity and Christian nationalism is a huge threat to society that must be stopped at all cost. And so you can hear this uh, bemoaning of Christianity in a recent Yahoo News article, and it says this, How Montana Became a Testing Ground for Christian Nationalism. The fifth season of the hit show Yellowstone premiered on the Sunday after the midterm elections with Kevin Costner's character, the rancher John Dutton, assuming Montana's governorship. This was never my plan, he says, wearing a cowboy hat outside the state capitol building in Helena. Dutton has reluctantly entered politics in part to stop an influx of rich outsiders he believes are transforming his home. In the last three years, Montana has become the second fastest growing state in the nation, largely because of the arrival of wealthy transplants. Unlike Dutton, many influential figures in the state's real Republican Party have welcomed them, sometimes calling them political refugees fleeing blue states. Montana's actual governor, the Republican Greg Giaforte, is himself a multimillionaire who was raised in Pennsylvania since assuming office in 2021. Gianforte has presided over this period of demographic change and economic growth, which has coincided with a hard shift to the right in state politics. Now, get this right. Okay, so this guy who is a multimillionaire, so now the left has a problem with multimillionaires, although they absolutely love it when it comes in the form of Bill Gates and he gets to sterilize people in the third world. But this guy, because he's a Republican, is a real threat and deserves to be withstood at all cost. And then Montana is to blame for shifting red in the midst of people moving to the state. Why? Well, simply because blue states are absolutely insane and have lost their mind. Now, this is happening here in Tennessee as well. So we can't be blamed that you and blue states are totally destroying your cities and then people want to get rid of and get out of those places as much as they possibly can and come to red states that aren't being governed by insane policy. See, that's just hardly the fault of Republicans here. Uh, but yet, this New York Times article wants to blame Republicans for the influx of, of, uh, of people into these red states. Now, if you, if you think that that's insane already, let's go into the main gripe here that that as these places become red and more populated, and obviously the real reason they're worried about that is it becomes a threat to Democrats. Here, here's the issue that uh, that this writer wants to draw with the increased size and population of these red cities and states. So, so here's the big problem. The Montana Republican Party has a few factions, among them free market advocates and moderates willing to cross party lines, but the dominant voice is that of the far right. At the convention in Billings, that group was well represented. In attendance was the party treasurer, Derek Skies, who has called Montana's constitution a socialist rag. A state representative named John Fuller, who published an opinion column in the Flathead Beacon earlier that year, declaring that democracy had failed as miserably as socialism. Now, I want to stop real quick because already as I'm reading this article, you may think to yourself, what in the world does this have to do with Christianity? Well, it doesn't. Of course, this is a little bit like that whole Kristallnacht thing where you want to blame Jews for doing things that they didn't do because really you hate Jews. So this is the same thing here. They want to blame this all on Christians because at the end of the day, really, they just hate Christianity and hate Christians. And so they're trying to find some way to say that everything that we hate somehow goes into Christianity, but the article does talk about Christianity, at least in a slightly substantive way, toward the very end. So here's that. 
Gianforte, a bald, resolute man of 61, made only a brief appearance in Billings. He is an evangelical Christian and former entrepreneur who sold his cloud-based customer service company, Right Now Technologies, to Oracle and for $1.5 billion in 2012. Not a Christian, no! Before entering politics for more than 25 years, Gianforte has belonged to a church in Bozeman adhering to a literal interpretation of the Bible that rejects evolution and considers homosexuality a sin. Can you believe it? There's a person that believes the Bible and they're actually in political office. What will we do about this? Somebody get the gallows ready. He doesn't often discuss his faith, but his donations reflect a clear set of religious values. Through their foundation, Gianforte and his wife Susan have contributed to an organization that funds scholarships at private schools, many of which are Christian, a Montana fossil museum that challenges evolution, and focus on the family, a Christian organization that vehemently opposes gay rights. What do you do? I mean, come on. This has to be stopped. Giving money to private schools, giving money to a museum, and giving money to focus on the family? I mean, can you get any more Nazi and white supremacist than those three things? It's like the holy trinity of evil, right? Focus on the family, of course, being God the Father, because they're the most evil organization. It's like, I mean, the only thing worse would be focus on the family and Chick-fil-A, which is uh, a, a dipartite, you know, axis of evil destroying America as we know it. Chick-fil-A, even though they're not open on Sunday, destroying America along with focus on the family. So, of course, we know here, actually, um, the individual writing this New York Times article should have someone whisper gently in their ear and say, your bigotry is showing, so that they understand that this article is the most ridiculous thing that anyone has ever heard of. What this really is about, more than anything, is just an individual's hatred toward Christianity. And this is the reason I bring this up, is that for far too long we as Christians have heard people express their bigotry toward Christianity and then tried to accommodate it. We've heard people say things like, you know, uh, the only thing that can't be tolerated is an evangelical Christian who believes something different than I do. And so this talk of tolerance totally stops the moment somebody disagrees with this other person. And, of course, Christians have been called judgmental for far too long, hellfire and brimstone. And the reality is, is all of these are tactics to just make sure that Christians are silent. Because the vast majority of people on the left and in the Democratic Party, even those who say they're Christians, really aren't. And we're going to see that in just just a moment here. But I hope we can understand at the end of the day, here is what we're really dealing with in the American West, especially for those of us who are Christians, is that the resistance towards Christianity has nothing to do with Christianity and its historic sins in the past. It simply has to do with an individual's bigotry towards this religion. And it's weird to me that the only kind of intolerance accepted in our nation is intolerance expressed toward Christians. So, so you can't show bigotry. You can't show bigotry to anybody unless you're showing it towards a Christian. Then, in that case, it's totally fine. And that's what we see in this article, right? I mean, if the left was in, at least intellectually consistent with any of their ideas, they would stop this nonsense and say this is this is oppressing people and this is marginalizing a religious community. And how dare you say such things? It's funny to me that the New York Times is not writing articles about Muslims. Hmm. Which shows me just one thing. Ultimately, really what this is about for the left is the thing they talk about the most. This is about power. 
They want to strip any vestige of power that Christianity has had in our nation, and they want to wrest it for themselves simply because they are obsessed with it. They, they can't live a day without talking about it. They want it because they're so envious of what Christianity has been able to do and build in the American West that now they want to try their hand at destroying it so that they can prove to themselves that they never deserve that power in the first place. But of course, the people who can't actually do teach. So they go around and the academy and they... Uh, castigate Christians, and they castigate people on the right, and they castigate conservatives, and they they teach a new generation of people to hate Christianity without cause. And we may find that as we chip away at the foundation under our feet, it's actually kind of a little bit, um, it's kind of a little bit dangerous, as we're seeing in the UK on a show that's in the UK that never heard of in my life, which it's not surprising because I haven't heard of anything in the UK besides the BBC and. Um, Wrexham, that thing with Ryan Reynolds and the other guy. Um, anyway, uh, so suffice to say, um, this show just recently highlighted the story of a person who grew up um, as a Christian, became a priest, was married, had multiple children, and then decided in the midst of all that to disown all of his children and his wife because he decided that he was non-binary. So here's just a little clip of that morning show with the first ever groundbreaking non-binary priest in the UK. Now then, our next guest has a truly fascinating story. Bingo Allison was studying to be a priest, living life as a straight man with a wife and three children uh, when uh, they had an epiphany. After discovering their true identity, Bingo came out as genderqueer and in doing so, becoming the UK's first openly non-binary priest. And Bingo joins us now. Welcome. It's really lovely to have you here. Thank you. Um now, guys, I don't know whatever happened to, like, adultery and divorce and all that stuff and what the church actually thinks about that and how they do that in the U.K., but suffice to say, uh, it seems pretty clear that um, this guy has no qualms about the actual moral teachings of Scripture because what's more important is that this man has had an epiphany, and the epiphany that he got was that his name is Bingo, which for the record is a dog's name or a song's name, either way you go children's song, dog, whatever, and and also an epiphany about a complete lie that this man is, is a woman. So let's just be really clear that the movement of left-wing gender ideology is predicated upon the movement of progressivism. And by that, I just mean like this. Uh, this idea is that movement is improvement. See, the progressive movement thinks that, hey, you can leave your family and you can totally dismantle women's sports and you can totally dismantle womanhood, especially after women have fought so hard to finally find some vestiges of equality in society. You can totally demolish all of that work because the next best thing in womanhood is actually men. Um, and so the idea here is that movement is improvement in that you can be walking backwards. You can be destroying all the progress that you've made and the left will consider that progress or progressivism just simply because they're moving, because they're utterly rebellious, I would say against Christianity, but utter rebellious against, utter, utterly rebellious against society. See, the progressive movement is so predicated upon the future that they don't care about behavior in the present. 
See, they don't understand that your good behavior in the present paves the way for a beautiful future. No, they are so dedicated to the future that they will do anything they can in the present, regardless of how many people it hurts, in order to seek their so, so-called improvement. By the way, there's a philosophical basis for, 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 for this, and it's utilitarianism. And it's this idea that uh, our understanding and our, you know, deception, our belief of good, it, the ends will justify the mean to that. And, and ultimately, the progressive movement is operating on a utilitarian basis. Doesn't matter how much blood you have to shed. Doesn't matter how many homes you have to wreck. It doesn't matter how many kids that you have to butcher in, in gender clinics around the United States and abroad. Doesn't matter how many casualties we have to have along the way to our road to progress, as long as we meet progress somewhere in the middle. But the, the problem with this whole utopianistic idea is that we never ultimately get there. Now, I want to show you one more thing about this clip. So we went from talking about an epiphany, which is really just kind of a utilitarian philosophy. And, and, and I want to hear, I want you to hear one more aspect of this where this individual is going to talk to us about language and needing the right language to, to search for their, their significance here. So here's that. Well, that was just so far beyond what, what I experienced. I don't think I'd met any gay people uh, when I was younger, and I'd certainly not met any trans people. The mm. trans people that were in the media were kind of the butt of jokes and, and kind of not really uh, uh, something, you know, that you would aspire to. And so uh, it's almost like there was, there was this whole world that, that yeah. was, mm. wasn't, didn't exist for me. So mm -hmm. you obviously weren't um, uh, around that area, that community, but mm. at the same time, you did have questions about your own identity and your own sexuality, but you feel didn't have the vocabulary to understand Yeah, it. it's almost like, um, you know, if you don't have the word for it, then you can't really own it for yourself. You know, I just love this. This individual is seeking for language. So let me try to help you. Um, the language you were looking for is not non-binary. The language you were looking for is notoriety. Because one of the quickest and cheapest ways to find notoriety in our social media age is to uh, uh, quickly look at your birth certificate, scratch out your biological sex, and put any number of things in, that, in its place. Now, I'm not trying to be merely sarcastic here, although I am doing that. I'm merely saying, I'm trying to make a broader point here, is that the way in which we are searching for meaning in the present has no Christian basis. And it is causing us to do things like lie to ourselves about who we actually are. And in the process, it provides us this unfulfilling, unmeaningful existence. So this person I don't think is actually looking for language. They're looking to be noticed. See, aren't we all to some degree? No one would have known who this priest was outside of the fact that they just changed their gender magically by waving a wand over their family and saying, get out of here. Um, the only way this person is on TV is because they're making this big fuss about who they sleep with and how they dress. So there's something to be said here about the way in which social media ha is almost largely responsible for the LGBTQ phenomenon and people coming out of the closet and how it's the cheapest way to get likes from going to total obscurity to uh, people actually noticing you. And it just shows that really what's going on in society today is a desperate search for meaning and we're looking 
for that meaning in, in all the wrong places, which brings us back to the whole idea of language here. See, because all of us use language to understand the world. There is a a sense in which language constructs the world as we know it. And this does not mean simply that you can construct the world subjectively, but that the language that we use uses helps us identify reality and helps us identify the real world. So when we say man, what we mean is probably some subjective things, but ultimately we're trying to to illustrate with subjective language, we're trying to illustrate an objective reality. So when we say man or woman, we're we're doing that. And the reason that is important is this, is that we all have a standard by which we determine reality. For the Christian, we use a kind of language. We use something called logos or the word of God. See, the language found in scripture determines and dictates reality for Christians. And it is a higher transcendent good and a higher transcendent uh, value that we look to rather than just our own self-reference, which is so important to a society because there is room for teachability and correction if we know that the source is not us, but it's a higher source than ourselves. However, and this is why I think we need to use religious arguments on the right more, not less. When you're speaking to a person whose ultimate standard of reference to determine reality is nothing more than their own feelings. They're using a different kind of language to dictate reality. They're using their ethos rather than their logos, or forgive me, they're using their pathos rather than their logos. See, your emotions and your feelings dictate reality to you. Well, then you ultimately become the standard of reference. You are the one who dictates dictates truth. And no wonder we say things like my truth and your truth when the reality is, is you don't possess a truth and you don't own a truth. We all can just adhere to and believe the truth or not. We're using my truth as just a different way. And it's a funny language game as a different way of saying this, my experience, which is interesting because your experience doesn't dictate the truth. Now, it can help you understand the truth, but the problem with your experience is that there's a mediator that's discerning the truth in the middle of that. It's you, and you're flawed because you're human, like all of us are. So it's funny that we're using my truth rather than my experience so that we can try to push aside the fact that we can be wrong. Because if we ever look in the mirror and recognize that we can be wrong, guess what that leads us to? It leads us to an understanding that we need a higher reference, a higher standard by which to judge reality. In other words, we need transcendent values and perhaps even a transcendent God. But it's one of the things that more and more we want to reject at all cost, if at all possible, because ultimately we want to be on the throne. And this is where you get the Democrats giving us their latest rendition of Bible study. So I think I can start a whole segment called Bible Study with Democrats. And today we're going to jump into that as we look at what Democrats just recently said about a bill not only to protect pregnancy resource centers, uh, but also a bill to protect botched abortions, to protect babies who are the subject of botched abortions. So Democrats believe that in the best interest of the baby, the best thing that you could possibly do is to kill the baby if it is born alive. So we'll see their hypocrisy on display. They just hate babies. So here's that. The pro-choice Christian who chose life this issue is so personal to me. My faith informs my actions, but it doesn't dictate the policy of an entire nation. And further, 
When I read the scripture, I turn to passages and I'm guided by passages like Jeremiah 1 verses 5, which states, I knew you before I formed you and I placed you in your mother's womb. It doesn't say the government's womb or the speaker's womb. It says the mother's womb. Sincerely, guys, the dumbest interpretation of scripture I've ever heard. So because God places this child that it knows intimately from the moment it is conceived in the womb of a woman, it means that the woman can kill it? I mean, that's what we're going with here, that the ability to kill things is predicated upon location, not not just a standard basis of morality. So if you take a baby to McDonald's, which may be killing it anyway, um, but if you take it to McDonald's, it's okay to kill it there. But if you take it to like... Target, which is obviously where you should take all babies according to the left so that you can put them in their LGBTQ romper. Um, that's okay. Don't kill them there. So locationality determines personhood. Now, this is the latest in the in the ridiculousness of Democrats. But trust me, it gets worse because now we're not talking about the right of a woman to kill a baby, uh, violating all sorts of other scriptures, by the way, thou shalt not kill among them. Uh, but now we're going to talk about babies that are born um, and fight through a botched abortion and are able to overcome that heinous act and then what we should do to them once they are born. The Republicans want to protect them. Democrats, well, they want to do something else. So here's that. Not only is it illegal to not care for a born infant, but the, the law that you have provided on the Republican side actually can create more harm It requires immediately taking a struggling baby to a hospital. That hospital could be hours away and could be detrimental to the life of that baby. That hospital could be hours away and it endangers the life of a baby. So the only option we have is to kill it right there on the table or more importantly, as it's it's exasperated and desperate to cling to life and desperate to cling to breath, just just let it sit there and writhe in pain. That's the best that we can do. How inhumane of you dumb Republicans to try to rush a baby to an emergency room where it can get the help that it needs. We all know the most just thing that you can do is let that baby die. As we close out the show, I just want to say this. Look, it took us just about minutes after Kevin McCarthy became the Speaker of the House to expose the murderous death cult that is the Democratic Party in the United States. These people are god-awful. And, and if that weren't enough, that they are desperate to try to justify their murderous tendencies, they are desperate to make sense, too. Isn't it interesting that when we move further and further away from a standard of reference or a transcendent set of values or when you move further and further away from the teachings of Christ, that slowly but surely you find yourself speaking in circles and in contradictory and in contradictory ways. One of the greatest casualties of our time is the is the death of the law of non-contradiction. And so now you can be completely incoherent and inconsistent in your belief system, and it totally makes sense to the postmodern. 
So, of course, the, the, this is found in the LGBT community, right, that says that uh, gender is fluid and everything is fluid. Um, you, you know, your sexuality is fluid. How you feel is fluid. Everything's fluid, of course, unless you don't agree with me. And then you must be punished because we rigidly enforce upon each and every person the idea that everything is fluid, which totally makes a lot of sense. So here's, here's the point is that Christian nationalism is a threat merely to liars. Because one of the things that we're going to find is that Christianity is not only historical, but it's actually virtuous. And it's based upon rational thought rather than just blind ideology. This is why I think we should teach religion in Christianity proper in schools, because it's a part of history. And it's a part of the world as we know it. See, teaching LGBTQ courses in a sex education program, program is not the world as we know it. In fact, this is a relatively new idea that we're still experimenting on with, with kids. But yet, we are wholeheartedly accepting these kind of curriculums while making sure that we push away Christianity at all costs. Is it at least possible that the real reason people are resistant to Christianity is the same reason they've been resistant to it since its inception, since Pontius Pilate looked at Jesus in the face and asked him, what is truth? Is it possible that we're turning people who are relatively al relatively good allies into complete enemies because when we get rid of the devil and the enemy, as the Bible depicts it, that we have to find an enemy to put in his place? And anybody who disagrees with us will do it. So you see, there's all these unintended consequences and all these unintended benefits of, of believing in something like Christianity rather than consistently changing what we believe from generation to generation to generation. Not only is that carousel of ideology dizzying, to say the least, as is the multi multiplied number of genders that are out there in the world today, but it also is no way to build a society. I've said it once and I'll say it again. If we're going to build a society on an agreed social contract, I see no reason why we should build upon secular humanism and its track record in the 20th century of a pile of bodies greater than any other century before it and not build upon the track record of Christianity, which, by the way, doing way better than secular humanism. So for that reason, I say this, Christian nationalism, bring it on. Secular humanism, no thanks. But I'd love to hear what you have to say, so you can comment respectfully down below in the comment section, and you can like, share, and subscribe. But most importantly, you can go with God. Thanks for watching.